You okay there? Jesus. I think I hurt someone. This is Ed Warren, here with Lorraine. All right, let's get started. Residents of Brookfield were shocked this afternoon by the broad daylight murder of Bruno Saul. The court accepts the existence of God every time a witness swears to tell the truth. I think it's about time they accept the existence of the devil. Whatever was going on, whatever happened that day, that was not Arnie. It's a witch's totem. We think your family was cursed. And that connection's still broken. I'm only interested in reality. But I can see things that your people can't. Something terrible happened here. Master Satan is not an adversary to be taken lightly. She's doing it again. She's reaching out to the darkness. Lorraine, you need to come back. You're saving him with everything you have. Because that's what it may very well cost. everybody welcome to the latest episode of fresh cuts i am mike and joining me as always it's mr venom what's going on venom greetings and salutations believers in the satanic panic yeah yeah i'm not doing too bad how you doing mike doing all right it's day two of the new job and settling into a new routine luckily my shift's similar so it's not really messing with our scheduling as far as the podcast go at all so that's good Good enough. Yep. <laughs> All right, and joining us as always as well, it's Don. What's going on, Don? Hey, what's going on, guys? Yeah, great to be back as always. Cool. Well, uh, this week we are covering the title uh, that was released theatrically and on HBO Max simultaneously. So uh, that would be The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, which I guess technically is The Conjuring 3. So, yeah, so this is uh, the third in the series. Um, I believe both Conjuring movies were out before Fresh Cuts. Actually, you know what? I don't know. I I, I want to say I remember talking no, about we, we, the we second one. No, we never did a Conjuring. But... No, we did. We've done everything since, like the, the Nun, La Girona, uh, Annabelle Comes Home. Like, we've done everything over the last few years, but I'm pretty sure we have not done Conjuring 2. I, I could be wrong, but... Probably not on Fresh Cut. I remember talking about it, but I don't know... Oh, maybe on where, Just the Movies, what a, yeah. Either that or, like, a 
on a guest show. I, like, I don't know. It, mm-hmm. it, it's been so long. Oh, I guarantee I've talked about it on a show. I, I know the horror cast uh, did the franchise, so I got to talk about it there. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go to IMDb with a synopsis I could really cover any conjuring movie <laughs> the the warrens investigate a murder that may be linked to a demonic possession <laughs> nice and generic and pretty much you know covers the movie but uh yeah this one god clocking in at almost two hours so uh, is that well, normal part of, I, well no two is uh part two is two hours and 15 minutes so yeah it's pretty standard wow. that they're two hours, close to, if not over. Uh, yep. Because right. the first, first one, one, I believe, was 151. Yeah, I think this one is just, like, right around the same as the first one. Uh, part two is, like, two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. They crammed so much into part two, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's start off, like usual, with the general thoughts. Venom, The Conjuring. Did the devil make you like it? What do you think? <laughs> All right, so for those who don't know, I am from Connecticut. I'm from Waterbury, Connecticut, which is uh, probably about 25 minutes away from where this crime took place. I remember hearing about it on the news. It it didn't last for very long as far as the big hoopla about it. The overall satanic panic uh, definitely lasted longer than, uh, you know, the notoriety of this case, because this case really only... The actual real-life trial was only a few days. It was literally like a five-day trial, and it took the jury like three hours to deliberate a, a decision, which you know we'll get into later on, because um, they do cover that in the movie as well. So that might be a little bit of a spoiler to people who aren't familiar with the crime. But The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. This is a very different Conjuring film. Um, A big part of what people love about the first two Conjuring films is that they are kind of horror fast food. You know, they're just their comfort food. Lots of big set pieces, um, you know, lots of big um, bombastic villains. You know, obviously the first two movies have given us villains like Valak the Nun, uh, the Crooked Man, Annabelle, Bathsheba. This movie is very different in that it's probably going to be the first Conjuring movie to not spawn a spinoff film because there's not really any one big evil character in this movie. Obviously, it's called The Devil Made Me Do It, but, you know, thank God they didn't actually try to, you know, say that this was actually Satan doing all of this. But we'll get into that in the spoilers. Um, so, like I said, this is a very subdued, almost grounded Conjuring movie. If 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 what you love about the first two movies is kind of the circus sideshow aspect of it, the big set pieces, the big CG, um, you know, uh, scenes, you're probably not going to like this film. This film is also very Warren centric. Uh, you get a lot more of the Warrens in this one, um, specifically because one of them is kind of under the weather for pretty much the entire film. And um, which adds a little bit of tension, suspense to the whole thing. But it's like I said, this is a very Warren centric uh, film. So having said all of that, what do I think about this movie? (laughs) My friends, I fucking love it. This may be and this is a bold statement I'm going to make, but I'm going to die on this hill. This may be my favorite Conjuring movie. It's it's the Conjuring movie that I've always wanted to see. Um, you know, it doesn't have, as I've already said, the big characters and the 
you know, the gigantic set pieces. Yeah, we still get the conjuring set pieces here. We we still get the jump scares, massive amount of jump scares. But like I said, this story just feels so much more grounded. And they did so many new things in this movie, specifically with the antagonist, which unfortunately I can't get into uh, in the non-spoiler section. But it's a new kind of antagonist that the Conjuring films have never had before. And um, this is going to turn a lot of people off. I have a feeling that this is going to be a very divisive movie because I think people are coming in because this is now the third in the franchise. And by the time a horror franchise gets to the third movie, this is where they start pulling out all the stops and they start going over the top. And, you know, I, I think of Dream Warriors. I think of Friday the 13th Part 3. You know, they they, they try to um, even Halloween 3 season of The Witch, where they try to break the mold and do something bigger and badder than they've ever done. But The Conjuring did a complete 180 to that. They just did not make this big movie that I was expecting. And you know what? I loved it for it. I think the performances here, I think Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are, these are probably their best performances as the Warrens. I legitimately felt a lot for them, especially because of what happens to one of the characters in the movie. And for people who followed me my whole time podcasting, they may remember that I also went through the same medical condition that one of the characters goes through in the movie. So I don't know if maybe that me makes me a little biased and makes me kind of gravitate towards these characters because we are now in the 80s. Obviously, the Conjuring franchise, for the most part, takes place in the 60s and 70s with some of the earlier films like The Nun uh, taking place in the 50s. But... Uh, we're, we're now in the early 80s. It's 1981 in the Conjuring franchise. So Ed and Lorraine are a little bit older. And I think that just speaks to me as I am now myself, an older, you know, um, horror and ghost enthusiast. So for whatever it's worth, this movie may have spoken to me. I, I fully understand that I'm going to be in the minority on this one. I've heard a lot of positive things about the movie. Most people like it. But I've also heard about 99% of the people that say they like it say it's the weakest of the trilogy. And like I said, if that's what you're looking for from The Conjuring, those big, over-the-top, loud set pieces with shit flying around all over the room, you're not going to get that here. This is a very low-key um, you know, horror film. It still has The Conjuring DNA all over it. Like I said, we still get plenty of jump scares. Lots of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, we get the cold open that we're used to from The Conjuring films. Though in this film, the cold, for the first time, uh, something else that they did new for the first time, um, the cold open actually had something to do with the rest of the movie in this case. Whereas if we remember in part one, the cold open was the Annabelle story. In part two, the cold open uh, was the Amityville Horror. So in this, um, you know, The Conjuring 3, we finally get a cold open that actually has something to do with the main story. And I think that kind of added a little bit of something to it. And instead of experiencing this cold open and then pretty much forgetting about it for the rest of the movie, it actually held weight for the rest of the film. And I appreciated that. Um, the, the score, the, this is something that I feel The Conjuring, and I know a lot of people don't like this, but this is something I feel The Conjuring does masterfully. It's their use of pop music. Um, 
all of their films are obviously period pieces. Like I said, for the most part, they take place in the 60s and 70s. And the way that they utilize the pop music in that, it's almost like James Gunn and a Guardians of the Galaxy film, where he so perfectly utilizes pop songs. And um, uh, I went back and I watched all three Conjuring movies this weekend. Um, you know, I watched part two before going to the theater to watch Devil on IMAX. And then I did end up uh, doing a rewatch of Devil on HBO Max. And then I went ahead and watched part one last night. So in the last three days, I've watched all three Conjurings. And I've come to the conclusion that I love all three of them for different reasons. But one of the major things that they all have in common is their use of uh, popular songs of the day, be it 60s, 70s, or now early 80s. You know, we get Blondie utilized quite masterfully in this movie. The song Call Me, that's another thing, too. To the, to even, they, they utilize the music so well that the lyrics to Call Me actually become a plot point later in the film, uh, which we'll talk about in the spoiler section. I know I'm getting long-winded, but the, the thing is, is that I've spent the last two days watching a lot of lukewarm reviews for this movie, and I'm finally getting a chance to speak my piece. And I am the first person that I know of that absolutely loved this film. And I, as I've already said, I'm going to die on that hill. I absolutely love The Devil Made Me Do It. I'm not going to say it's my absolute favorite of the three, but in years to come, it's definitely... Um, it, it, it's definitely going to battle with the other three. But then again, like I said, I try not to do that whole thing with ranking franchise films. I just enjoy my franchises as a whole. And thus far, The Conjuring, maybe not with all their side stories, but at least with the main storyline, the three Conjuring films, I think they've nailed it all three times. And I and this movie gets an absolute high recommend from me. See it in IMAX if you can. Okay, Dawn, did you see it in IMAX? No, I saw it on Max. Um, HBO yeah. Max. Um, H-Max. So, like, Venom... Yeah, H-Max. <laughs> so, like, Venom, uh, he's going to die on a hill for a film in the franchise, and I'm going to do one, say one for myself uh, regarding the franchise. I'm going to say that the first Conjuring is in the top five of the entire decade. I absolutely love the first Conjuring one. It is absolutely everything that I look for in mainstream genre cinema. You know, I, yeah, we watch more indie stuff, so there's a different criteria, but when I look, think mainstream genre cinema, I think the first Conjuring, that movie still holds up for me. I absolutely love it. And I'm going to say top five of the... Like, I love it that much. I wouldn't argue with that at all. Yeah. <laughs> Two, I'm a little lower on. Uh, two for me just feels overlong. I'm not a huge fan of the plot line where they think they're over, then they think to themselves, oh shit, we've been tricked, and then they have to backtrack and keep the movie going for an extra 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that kind of yeah, that pisses me off and it lowers me a little, lowers me on the film a little. To get to part three, um, I'm right on Venom's heels. This is just a notch below the original for me. I absolutely loved my time with it. He this is absolutely correct. This is grounded. This is not, you know, over-the-top spook show city, you know, jump scares every 20 seconds. To be honest, I only counted really three that were, like, legitimate jump scares. Two of them got me. One I did see coming, and the one that I did see coming is a plot point that I have, an in that I have a 
real, real hard time struggling with because it's the one factor in the film that I have an issue with. And something we can talk about later on. But the rest of the film I love. There's a fun mystery here. There's a side story that doesn't intrude on the main film too much that actually has bearing on what's going on. You know, the Warrens are fun. I, I love this movie. This is, I for me right now, I would be very, very, very surprised if this isn't in my top three of the years as we stand right now. Uh, I don't know how much more I can say without going deeper into spoilers, but yeah, I'm with Venom. This was a total blast, and I absolutely loved it. <laughs> oh, I love Don. I love Don right now. <laughs> All right. Well, while you guys love each other, prepare to hate me, because I fucking hated this movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Hate's maybe strong. I was just a little bored by it. Um, now, Venom, a little point you made, I'm glad you brought it up, because I couldn't tell if um, my memory is just off, because I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know... Um, the first two Conjurings I saw in the theater, but I haven't seen them since. Not like I wasn't purposely avoiding them because I liked them okay. I, I to me they were movies like they didn't reinvent, you know, they didn't reinvent the possession mm-hmm. or haunted house or whatever genre. But I thought James Wan did a good job, you know, with uh, the material and his techniques, and they were enjoyable movies. But I haven't seen them since, so. As I'm watching this, like my first initial, like the first thoughts from my mind were, am I remembering things incorrectly or are all of a sudden the Warrens like way bigger part of this movie than they were the first Mm -hmm. two? And the fact that you called this one Warren centric, that at least, you know, justified my memory a little bit to say, yeah, this one, I I couldn't tell. I was like, is this movie the Warrens movie or the family? Because I felt like it was more Warrens than family i personally don't give a shit about the warrens i think they work better as bit players as a couple that kind of comes in after the fact that's what i liked about the first two was that we got a lot of movie before the warrens kind of came in mm-hmm. as an impact think poltergeist with tangina she wasn't there the whole time she kind of came in as like the mysterious you know uh whatever you, i don't know i don't know a medium or i don't even know mm-hmm. the exact term now, I understand that being the third movie in the franchise, the Warrens aren't going to have that same mysterious entry. We know who they are. We know what role they have to play. Still, I don't find them interesting enough or their story to justify them being the majority of the movie. I also didn't find this family or the events happening in it nearly as interesting or I didn't care about this family like the way I did the first two. And maybe that's because in the first two, we got a lot of the family stuff, you know, shit happening to the family other than just kind of like your old school, traditional, um, you know, ex or possession. This one felt much more, you know, you're just, well, in spoilers, it, it wasn't exactly that, but you know what I'm like, kind of the presentation of what was going on. It, at first it felt like more just like, you know, your classic, okay, dudes, um, possessed by a demon, but it didn't feel like you know all the other crazy, like you guys both said, a, a lot less of the crazy stuff yeah. going on. And to me, that's what I liked about the first two Conjurings. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It, 
like it's a case of I don't think it's a poorly made movie necessarily. I just didn't find it as interesting or entertaining, and I I was just kind of like I. I'm not I'm not very interested in what's going on in this movie. That I think that was my main problem. And I um I think with my um, interest, it combined with the fact that it was less over the top and less less actual stuff going on is what uh made me just think a lot less of it than you guys. Like I said, I can't say I hated it, I can't say it's poorly made. It just it didn't tickle my senses the way it did for you. Um, now maybe you know down the road on a rewatch when I kind of have that expectation of it's a lot different than the first two because I did kind of hear that from you know reviews. I, I didn't read in depth spoilers or reviews of it or anything, but I I saw enough you know brief posts on social media to, to expect it to be a little different. Um, I felt it was a lot different. I don't know if it's because James Wan um didn't direct this that's one. actually I, what i was gonna say i think you're just you're more of a james wan fan than you actually want to admit i think oh i'm <laughs> yeah you know yeah not to I'm say not, that you're not a fan i'm saying oh yeah i'm not anti-james wan like he has he has hits and misses but his when he hits i think he hits really well and this one felt very much removed from the james wan style yep. um, and, <laughs> and i think that's why people are either gonna love it or hate it yeah, exactly. And, you know, you know, and knowing that the Warrens are pretty much hucksters in real life, you, I, I understand you have to kind of remove that because that's yeah. this movie's not trying to be a bio, you know, a biography on the Warrens. But God, it some of this stuff so, felt so contra- like, you know, it's not really a spoiler to just say the dialogue isn't spoil anything. But the I think it's uh, Lorraine who said it like at the towards the end. When she's like, um, they they think our our love makes us weaker, but it really makes us strong. Man, I was about to fucking throw uh, up all over my I, TV. I completely understand, but for whatever it's worth, I love the Warrens. And I'm not talking about the real-life Warrens. I'm talking about the cinematic Warrens. I could watch multiple movies with just these two. Not even haunting, not, not even horror films. I mean, literally just a day in the life of the Warrens, I could watch it because I'm interested in the topic. You know, whether I believe in demons or demonology isn't really the subject right now, but it's something that I've always been, you know, mildly curious about. And, and I am interested in things like ghost hunting and the paranormal, things like that. So yes, the Warrens have come up. And yes, I understand that just as many people have accused them of being, you know, false or shysters as as the same amount of people who praise them and say that everything they say is true, blah, blah, blah. Now, obviously, you know, these movies always have the tag based on a true story. And I think that people just put way too much stock into that phrase. Just because a movie says based on a true story does not mean that every single scene actually happened. It doesn't mean that every single line of dialogue was actually spoken in real life. It means that this is based on a real-life murder case that occurred in 1981. Everything aside from that is all Hollywood, you know, spectacle. And the thing is, you kind of need that stuff. Because honestly, if you'd research The Devil Made Me Do It case, it's pretty dull. I mean, it's literally just, you know, a guy killed his landlord. He he claims it wasn't actually him. And I can't I can't actually get into too much of the trial because... 
Um, a lot of people, from what I'm reading from some reviews, a lot of people expect, expected more like trial footage in this movie. Like we were actually almost like an exorcism of Emily Rose type thing. But those people don't know how the actual court case went, which um, would have made for an incredibly dull movie. So obviously we have to sensationalize. And, you know, for some people, the sensationalization is just not up to par here. They wanted to see, I mean, some people probably want to see Satan come out of the floor and fly around and cut people's heads off, you know, and, you know. I know it's not completely incorrect to expect that. Cause like I said, this is the third movie in the franchise. People want to see even more over the top stuff. They want to see an even bigger crooked man. They want to see Annabelle walk around and wield a knife. You know what I mean? But for whatever it's worth, because James Wan kind of handed the baton off, we got a different interpretation of the Warren story. And for whatever it's worth. And like I said, I've already said, I'm probably going to be in the minority here. And that overall, more people are going to dislike this movie than like it. But I think it's just one of those things. And we've talked about it before on this very show. When movies subvert my expectations, I end up liking them more. Remember when we talked about the Wrong Turn remake? The fact that it turned out not to be almost anything like the original Wrong Turn. I ended up liking it because of that, and most people ended up disliking it. So you have to realize that you know, whenever a movie can surprise me, I'll take it. You know, and the fact that they surprised me here, but actually did it well, um, I loved it. Like, I thought the pacing here was so much better. I didn't have to deal with Patrick Wilson absolutely halting the entire movie to sing an Elvis song. As much as people love that scene of Patrick Wilson singing Elvis to the to the Enfield family, it brings the movie to an absolute grinding halt. And like Don said, that movie is two hours and 15 minutes. Do we really need that scene? Honestly, I understand it's cute. It's adorable. Girl, you know, some I know lots of uh, female horror fans that love Patrick Wilson and, you know, absolutely are very OK with that scene. But ultimately, you know. It, it, it director's cuts time. exist for a reason exactly thank you don yes i didn't need to see that in the theater yes <laughs> um this one i even though it's not as quote-unquote action-packed or over the top i had no issue with the pacing i thought the pacing was nice even the slow scenes yes even the flashback with them waiting out the rain in the gazebo that i'm sure made many horror fans vomit oh good I, lord i I, I, yeah. I don't care i i fucking don't care i love it i I like these two actors working together. I'm telling you, these two are awesome, and I will I, I will absolutely defend that to the death. Yes, Mike, I'm sorry it's sappy, but some of us actually some of us actually do talk to our wives like that. So well, well, and the thing is, it's like, and like I said, I have to base it off memory, mm-hmm. but I don't I don't really remember like disliking. The characters like removing yeah. any real life warrants out of the discussion but mm-hmm. as far as patrick wilson and formiga like their um portrayals of the warrens were fine to me I, I i don't remember watching the first two going god i hate the warrens i just think for me in this one it was just like the warrens movie it felt like and I, to me it was just too much well, I wanted to see more of the family, but the problem is the family... Well, there was one interesting character in the family to me, and that's the one that got offed. And I won't, <laughs> I, you know, I won't say who, because, you know, we're not in spoilers yet, but I was like, oh, man, not that person. Like, I want, I want to see more of that person oh, God. in this movie. <laughs> but, 
yeah, I, uh, man, I don't know. It was just... I mean, like I said, this movie's not going to speak to everybody, and it's, it's very obvious it didn't speak to you. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I said, I, I don't give people shit for not liking movies I like. And I've already said I'm probably going to be in the minority on this one. You know, me and Don are going to be some of the only people flying this flag. But, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I'm still going to stick to my words. And even though I've, I've probably given this movie the most positive review that I've heard yet, I, I, there's still so much more I could talk about. Oh, well, and Don, Don gave it the second most positive review. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but by the way, before we go into spoilers, we got to talk about Julian Hilliard. Holy shit, this kid. Um, uh, he plays ten-year-old uh, David in the in the film, who is the focus of the opening scene. I won't get into it in case people haven't seen the trailer or whatever. But um, little ten-year-old David is the focus of the cold open. This actor, Julian Hilliard. This kid is nine fucking years old, and he's a horror icon already. How the hell did this happen? This kid has been in the color out of space. He's now been in the Conjuring Three. That was he, him. Yeah, that was I him. knew it. That was fucking uh, me. Was, for, yeah, that yeah. was fucking me. The entire time I was watching, I was like, "That little dipshit." I know who he is. I know who he is, and I was like, "God!" I was trying to figure it out. And yeah, he's the young brother in Colorado space that's right ah it was killing me I, I was I, I didn't want to go to IMDB and look it up because I was like well I can't do that you know I'm gonna you know spoil something but ah that's who he was yeah. and not only has he done two major horror films he's already done two major horror series as well he he was the youngest sibling on the legend of hill house my favorite horror series of 2018, the, the Netflix show, which was absolutely spectacular, if you haven't seen it. And he was also um, a member of the cast of Penny Dreadful. I mean, this kid is nine years old. He turns 10 on June 21st of this year. And he's already a goddamn horror icon. I mean, I applaud that shit. Obviously, I'm sure it's not him going around saying, I want to be in horror movies. Uh, you know, it's probably more parents, agent, whatever else, but... God bless this kid. We have a nine-year-old horror icon. He's already done more movies, more horror films than, like, Jamie Lee Curtis did by 25. <laughs> yeah, I will say the cold opening I thought was good. I mean, that was, like, your typical Conjuring stuff right there. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly what we expect. That big circus sideshow type thing. Lots of loud noises, wind blowing, shit flying around the room. Yeah, I mean, it was very Conjuring that opening scene. So, I mean, you know, when you watch the cold open, you expect that the movie's going to kind of go in that same direction with its, you know, um, kind of over the topness of it, but nah, I mean, I, I, I was thinking recently that if I consider the conjuring one and two as horror fast food, which I absolutely do, I love them both. I'm going to say the conjuring three is like a horror salad. You know, they, they trim a little bit of the fat off, but it's still just as nutritious for you and you get everything you need. But some people still prefer McDonald's. So I understand where, you know, I understand why people are going to prefer those first two movies. But uh, I'm telling you, I, I think as the years go on, I have a feeling this is the one I'm going to rewatch more often. <laughs> did, did you like my food analogy? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't quite I don't know, a ever since dinner. This isn't quite a horror steak dinner. That would be like the upper echelon of horror, you know, The Shining, Zombie, Halloween, stuff like that. But I, I'd call this a horror salad, you know, it, not as tasty as horror fast food, but still nutritious and you get everything you need. 
with a few toppings sprinkled on for good measure. I I'm guess. a goddamn philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, all right. I'm good on general thoughts if you guys are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think there's anything else that I wanted to now. I mean, obviously, everybody's performance is really good. Um, the occultist who technically no one ever speaks her name, uh, you know, our, our antagonist. But, you know, we'll get mm-hmm. into that. Spoilers. That's why I'm saying that I don't think there's going to be a side story from this one, because this antagonist um, isn't quite as how uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um Living wide, widely consumable as, say, the Crooked Man or Annabelle. You know, those are you can make a franchise around a creepy doll. Uh, it's going to be a lot harder to make a franchise around this antagonist. And obviously we'll get into why in the spoiler section. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Well, with that said, we're going to hit some spoilers now. So uh, final warning. Final warning. But I would assume you're not here unless you've already seen it. But you never know. Yeah. All right, Venom, what do you want to open it up with? I don't know. I mean, we talked about the cold open. Um, Our movie opens up with um, David Glatzel, uh, 10-year-old David Glatzel getting an exorcism. You know, fairly, as Mike mentioned, fairly basic scene, uh, conjuring scene, you know, over-the-top, loud noises. Um, What do you call it? Lorraine Warren's there on the side having her weird flashbacks and visions and everything else like we're used to, blah, blah, blah. That's another thing about this movie, too. I thought that they brought um, her Lorraine Warren's kind of abilities more to the forefront because she's always kind of been considered a very powerful medium, um, you know, if you believe the stories, of course. You know, every I say everything today with a caveat. Um, but I, I liked how in this one they kind of it showed off more and it actually turned helpful at times too so that was kind of interesting but anyway like i said open up with an exorcism nothing too terribly special i mean like i said it's a pretty cool scene because it feels very much like the conjuring but this exorcism ends slightly differently from some that we've seen in the past whereas in this one uh they don't actually exorcise the demon so much as one of david's older well not a family member technically because arnie is not technically a member of the family uh he's dating david's sister so i mean he's kind of a uh soon to be in-law but yeah basically our our hero if you will arnie kind of challenges the demon you know telling him to get out of his brother take him you know again we've seen that before and of course it happens uh very even, reminiscent even that opening shot that opening oh, shot of the that, priest yeah. that the whole cold open is a pretty I, i'm gonna call it an homage because i don't like to use the word ripoff so i'm just gonna say it's it's an it's a scene that is honoring the exorcist from the exorcist arrival to the house um, you know, to the to David speaking in voices and tongues and stuff floating around the room and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, um, they do do something that I've I've never really seen before, at least not with a child actor. And they did that uh, wacky body contortion stuff that we see. Um, uh, we saw it quite prominently in Exorcism of Emily Rose. But here it's a 10 year old boy. And it really got me like something about how it looked and that and the fact that he held that position with his head bent backwards underneath him. Just I don't know. It got me. It freaked me out a little bit. (laughs) What'd you guys think of that? Uh, It was good. I mean, it was, you know, it was it was stuff we've seen before, but it's still fun and cool. And I like the way it was filmed. And yeah, it it definitely felt like homage to 
partially the exorcist and partially just different exorcism uh, tropes we've seen before. Yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty much our cold open. Uh, we we basically get that classic shot of David's um, whited out eyes kind of fade back in. His normal eyes fade back in, and at the same time, Arnie's eyes do the glossy thing they go glossy white obviously to indicate to the viewers that the demon or whoever has moved from david to arnie but uh when the when the entity changes to arnie arnie doesn't like freak out or anything arnie actually just doesn't do anything almost like he's hiding the fact um unfortunately the only person that actually saw this happen the transfer of demon from david to arnie was um what do you call it? Ed Warren, uh, Patrick Wilson. Unfortunately, at that exact moment, he suffered a heart attack. And that's what I was talking about, folks, that, you know, um, that I kind of I may have gravitated to the Warrens on this one, because the fact that Patrick Wilson, uh, his character, Ed Warren, has a heart attack in the very opening scene. And for the rest of the movie, you can see that he is visibly weak. He walks with a cane. He has to take heart pills in multiple scenes, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know, uh, you know, like I said, maybe I saw a little bit of myself in there. I, not that I'm a famous ghost hunter by any stretch, but I'd love to be. Oh, trust <laughs> but, me, Venom, it wasn't just you. I saw a lot of myself in Ed. Yeah. I mean, the I, panting, the wheezing, the winded <laughs> after everything after being in lockdown, he was very relatable. Yeah, aging sucks, folks. <laughs> aging is terrible, and... Yeah, um, just watching this movie and knowing, too, that the Warrens were in their 50s and si- 50s or 60s at this time just, you know, made it just even more um, just something for me to really gravitate towards. So, yeah, the fact that the Warrens were the fo- focus of this film more than the actual crime or the um, the entity that's causing all the issues, I personally had no problem with it. I loved it. I loved the focus of it. I'm very OK with it. Um so like I said, at this point, Ed has a heart attack, goes to the hospital. At this point, the movie kind of basically just goes um, into the actual crime. The devil made me do it murder. And uh, basically what they show us is a scene of um, Arnie at work. Uh, he's obviously being um, taunted by some entity. We see a female figure that, you know, obviously it's a conjuring movie, so most of us assume that it's some kind of ghost figure or something. Uh, but he sees the image of an older woman kind of taunting him, um, pounding him. Uh, at one point, his chainsaw comes on for no reason while he's on the job. He almost hurts one of his coworkers. Uh, so obviously, Artie's head is not in the right place that day, that entire day. He ends up going home um, and... Uh, for those who don't know, Arnie and his girlfriend lived at a dog kennel, actually. They lived at a big house with a dog kennel. Um, and the owner and proprietor of the dog kennel, uh, what was his name? Bruno, I believe. Yeah, Bruno. Um, he was, you know, just kind of your basic kind of southern drunk kind of dude, you know, drunk at the, in the middle of the day, even though he's technically on the job. You know, fun-loving rock and roll dude, you know, is more concerned with his stereo than he is with the dogs. So... You know, take from that what you will. Um, and then basically it's just kind of a weird altercation where Arnie, where where Bruno wants to listen to his music. Once again, Blondie's Call Me. He wants to listen to it at the absolute loudest fucking volume possible. And it's making Arnie having, he start to have like an anxiety attack type well, thing. Was, he starts, 
What's up? Well, I'm saying wasn't the entire well wasn't the entire point of it because he was trying to fix the volume because he said the volume knob was stuck. Yes, that's because he was trying to get him to fix the radio because the volume was stuck because she keeps on telling him to turn it down because the girlfriend keeps telling Bruno to turn it down and he said I need you know Arnie to fix the volume on. Sure. No, absolutely. But after and then, Arnie, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, he goes in and fixes yeah. it. Yeah. Bruno rules. Once Arnie fixes it, Bruno actually kind of, because once again, Arnie's girlfriend asks him, uh, Debbie, I believe her name was, asks uh, Bruno, please turn the music down. He fucks with her and actually turns it up as loud as it goes. He starts kind of forcing himself on the girlfriend, not like physically in a, in a rape way, but like da- like he's drunk and he wants to dance. So he's he's kind of forcing her to dance. Obviously, Arnie's right there, so he's not literally trying anything physical with the girl just kind of forcing her to dance but obviously there's lights flashing the music is pumping loud um and arnie basically just starts to see things basically you know he starts he thinks he sees an image of some kind of demonic presence and at one point the music stops And Arnie thinks that he's being attacked by something, but in actuality, it was just Bruno trying to uh, help him up. And he ends up stabbing Bruno 22 times in the in the confusion with all the loud music and everything. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, this is this is the one issue that I had with the film is that I I'm not entirely sure where the scene was going. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, you know. The entire play was that the devil made me do it. So to me, the idea is that if he witnesses the sequence, you know, the devil is, you know, toying with him. He's under, you know, whatever the, you know, what we find out later to be the case. But he should have actually instigated the attack rather than what he ends up doing, which is killing Bruno in self-defense. You know, if he misconstrues Bruno's interactions with his girlfriend as the demon trying to attack attack Debbie... Mm-hmm. which is what he sees, then he should have killed him then instead of dragging her away and then killing Bruno later on when he tra- trips through the, the mm-hmm. channel. It's, it, is, yeah. it, it just feels really weird. Like they, it's like, you know, the idea was there, but they just messed up, mm-hmm. messed up the opportunity to do it. Possibly, yeah. I mean, that whole scene felt rushed to me, too. Like, it didn't yeah. feel like they took their time with it. Because um, it, it, it felt like I blinked and suddenly Bruno was dead and, you know, yeah. now we're at the police station. And, and you know, it, it's kind of weird um, how they did that. But obviously, um, you know, he claims he was defending himself, that he thought Bruno was attacking him and stabbed him. They make a point to mention that he was stabbed 22 times as well, because then later on there's going to be another crime uh, from the past that they're investigating. And once again, they mention it there, too. Uh, 22 times but they never really unless i missed it they never get into why like why is that number important 22 or, yeah. or why you know they, they it's like a dangling plot point that they yeah, just I didn't kinda... catch i didn't catch why that was either because like yeah. you said that's why they she gets they get interested in the case is because they say the same number mm-hmm. that bruno gets killed in and then it's like okay well why is that important exactly yeah and they, they never tell us but you know whatever i'll forgive it, it it's a minor it's a minor nuisance, but, you know, whatever. Um, so, yeah, so now the crime has occurred and we go to court. And obviously this is where um, 
this is where the real story kind of converges, but it's also the exact point where the real story kind of goes down its boring path and the movie has to go down a different path to make it an exciting horror film, of course. Now, uh, in the film, we see the court scene where um, Arnie's defense attorney actually says, uh, I want to plead innocent um, uh, by, by reason of demonic possession. And of course, the judge you know, goes silent. The whole court goes silent. Everybody looks around and then the scene ends and it goes on to the next scene. Now, if you watch that, you would probably assume that the judge accepted the plea. Nope. In the real court <laughs> case, uh, the defense attorney did indeed still try to claim innocence by reason of demonic possession, but the judge said no. That you're not going to make my courtroom a travesty. Uh, you're not going to turn it into a circus. There is no possible way that you're going to convince a jury that this kid was possessed by a demon, you know, without any kind of, you know, video footage or corroborating stories, anything. You literally have one witness, the girlfriend, Debbie, and, you know, the lights were low and kind of flashing. So her story is going to be maybe not the most accurate. And obviously she's in love with Arnie, so she's going to defend him as much as she can. Um, anyway, uh, the judge in, re in the real world said, no, I do not accept that plea. So they basically changed the plea to guilty by uh, guilty of manslaughter and or, or innocent. I I'm very sorry innocent by reason of self-defense they changed their plea that's when they then tried to say that bruno attacked him blah 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 um later in the episode you know i'll tell you where the court case went and um uh you know the verdict and everything though we get that in the movie anyway but anyway so the point is this is the point in the film where it completely diverges from the real life story pretty much everything that happens after this point in the film is 100 percent fabricated for the film and mm. this is this is what i'm talking about about you know based on a true story and people taking that term too much to heart it's based on the real-life murder in Connecticut of Bruno, and that's it. That's the similarity. After that, yeah, the movie just goes crazy. Because then after this, uh, the Warrens, uh, or Lorraine specifically, finds a totem, a witch's totem, underneath uh, the, the Glatzel's house, um, you know, the original family where the kid was uh, uh, possessed. They found a, a totem. It looks like it's built with like sticks and bones and shit like that. And Lorraine Warren recognizes it as a witch's totem. And she recognizes that the family has been cursed. So someone ha is basically cursing this family. And this is what I was talking about in the non-spoiler section, that they do something different with the antagonist. We have a human antagonist in The Conjuring 3. We've never had a human antagonist in these films. You know, we've had guys that maybe we don't like. You know, like the uh, the reporter in uh, part two, the female reporter lady. Um, but this is our actual antagonist is a human being who is who has somehow um, figured out a way to utilize black magic to actually curse people and get a demon attached to them to actually get a demon to possess them and then eventually make that person commit a murder and then uh, commit suicide. So that was definitely interesting. Well, I mean, I I know that's probably a shock to the system when you guys first saw it, probably specifically for Mike. But I mean, what did you think of that? The human antagonist in this one, Mike specifically. 
I mean, I was okay with antagonists. Like, I've never been one to say, oh, it needs to be the devil himself or, you know, these demons with crazy powers. Because, you know, that's something I've always found funny about possessions. It's like, in order, you know, if you're buying into a possession movie to begin with, then obviously you are somewhat, you know, believing in the spiritual world. So it's always like, man, these spirits are... and demons or whatever seem awfully strong where's like the divine intervention to like get rid of them in the first place so uh the fact that this was you know this was more um almost almost kind of like a form of witchcraft going on somewhat you know Uh i i didn't really have a problem with that element i mean i thought that that was okay change it up a little give it give us something a little different yeah, I mean, they have to fill in the story, because like I said, mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot to the real-life story, so they obviously have to give us they have to give us some kind of antagonist, you know, something tangible that we can say, okay, there's the bad guy, we don't like that person, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, usually it's, you know, Annabelle or, you know, Valak or whatever the case may be, but here it is a human antagonist. Unfortunately, no one ever speaks her name in the film, but we do see an old family photo that lets us know that her name is Isla, I-S-L-A, not Ilsa, I-S-L-A, Isla, Isla, um, which is actually the Spanish word for island, but they were definitely not Spanish, so I don't know. But anyway, yeah, uh, basically we have a human antagonist, basically just a girl. As we find out later in the film, it's a woman who, you know, grew up hating the church because for... Um, because her birth was a secret she was basically hidden from the world because of how the church would look at her father um and blah 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 so she ends up turning to black magic and you know you can make an argument that it's maybe not the greatest motivation for a cinematic villain ever but again you know um there's no really predicting what crazy people do they justify things in their own way um you know be they schizophrenic sociopathic whatever the case may be you know um but yeah you know i i didn't hate our you know because she even kind of looks like a witch she's tall thin she's got a big nose uh a narrow chin <laughs> she literally almost looks like a traditional witch um but yeah um basically about i don't know halfway through the film um, Ed and Lorraine um, find some documentation that may be able to kind of explain what's going on at the at the Glatzel house, but there are passages in the book that they can't translate. So they end up having to go to this guy who is a former priest, I believe, or a former demonologist. I believe he's now retired. Um, I think this is where the movie uh, tried to attempt a little comedy, but maybe might have failed a little bit. Um, because when they um, basically uh, the scholar, the uh, the retired um, priest brings them downstairs and brings them into his version of the Warren Museum, basically where he is com- uh, collecting um, haunted objects, um, you know, holy texts, things like that. Um, and Lorraine, of all people, actually looks at him and says, you know, you should burn all this stuff down. And they kind of look at each other and, you know, with I, I don't think at this point the guy, uh, the older guy, knew who the Warrens were and knew that they had their own version of this museum. So, like I said, I think it was Lorraine having a little bit of fun, almost like an inside joke 
with uh, with her husband. But it, it was a little too inside to work because I, I heard a couple of people chuckle in the theater, but it definitely didn't hit the way I think they were hoping it would hit. But, you know, whatever. The Conjuring isn't exactly a horror comedy, so <laughs> I'll forgive it. Um, but anyway, um, through their research, um, and obviously there's multiple, you know, haunting scenes that we're not really, uh, we're not going to get into every single one. There's a scene where Arnie is in jail, um, and one of the inmates, actually, he his eyes go that glossy white, and he starts singing the lyrics to that Blondie song, Call Me. That's what, That's where I was like, ooh, you know, these guys are utilizing pop music even more than usual. Because I mean, he was he was basically saying some passages from the from the song "Call Me" that kind of fit the situation. I don't remember the exact lyrics, but yeah, I think it's the chorus. Yeah, it was very haunting. Either way, just no. I think it's the chorus of the Mm -hmm. song. I believe it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, because like I said, the old the old patient, you know, his eyes go glossy like he's possessed, and he says the words, and Arnie's sitting there you know, slowly backing away from the old man. Of course, we get a jump scare from there with uh, something grabbing Arnie from behind. Um, I, I was a little surprised that we never found out what that something was. Like, we, we see that thing, whatever it is, grab Arnie from behind twice in the movie. You know, we see its creepy face, you know, its sharp teeth and everything. But I, I even looked through the credits of the movie, and I can't find a credit for that character. So I don't know if that character was just completely CG, which is possible because we never see the whole body. We usually only see like the the bust, like the you know the head and shoulders pop out of the shadows or something. Um, but yeah, there is no credit in here for uh, the only the only ghost or spirit demon whatever that gets a credit is the linebacker. And who is the linebacker, you ask? Well, the linebacker is actually from my favorite scene in the movie, and that is the morgue scene. There is a scene in the film where Ed and Lorraine uh, go to the morgue to go to see if Lorraine could make some kind of psychic connection with the body of a girl who died in the same way that kind of, you know, Arnie kind of seems to be going towards, you know, being possessed, killing someone and then killing yourself. Um, and basically while they're in there, as soon as Lorraine touches the hand of the dead girl, uh, she starts to see a connection with the antagonist, the occultist. And, um, at that exact moment, one of the bot, one of the other bodies in the morgue actually comes to life. And of course it's going to be the biggest, scariest body in there. Uh, it looks like the dude's like six foot four, like 350 pounds. I mean, they gave him the name, the linebacker, and it absolutely fits. I mean, he's a big ass dude. And we actually see him twice in the movie because then later on he'll make a second appearance actually at the Warren's house um, in another scene where he just kind of pops out and chases Ed, you know, around for a little bit. But yeah, um, what'd you guys think of the morgue scene? It was fun. Um, I kind of suspected everything would go down the way it did. Um, she's gonna spend a, she's gonna spend a, her time doing her thing. He's gonna be off in the distance trying to get her attention, and then have to save her at the final moment. I mean, it's nothing groundbreaking, but it's like a fun little like tense scene, just because you know, is this gonna be the time where his ailments are gonna trip him up, and you know, he's gonna have to you know do some do something else to save her. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's a fun. I don't mind it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a fun little scene. 
it, you know, it fills in the plot points. It gets everything, you know, sorted out for later on. And, you know, you get a fun little jump scare. So exactly. it, yeah, this is kind of like your classic conjuring. Right yeah, here. I'll go with that. And yeah, like after. Yeah, after the uh, after the cold open, I think this is like the most conjuring centric scene you can have. <laughs> Absolutely, and, I'll go and, with the, that. <laughs> and the thing looked like a full a full size manifestation of Quato from Total yes. Recall, kind of. Quato. <laughs> 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 oh man, but yeah, um, you know, uh, a few pretty good set pieces. Like I said, you're you're rarely going to get anything in this movie that's as over the top as, say, the Crooked Man. You know, the scene with the Crooked Man from Part Two. Um, you know, or 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 Bathsheba's exorcism in Part One. You know, you're you're going to get very little over the top stuff like that, but you still get little set pieces here and there. Um, and then, you know, it kind of leads to the finale of the film where, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, Lorraine once again finds a passage in a book that she has that she can't read. She ends up going back uh, to the scholarly, the, the older gentleman. What the hell was his name? I'm sick of calling him that guy. Father Gordon. His name was Father Gordon, I believe. No, wait. Yes, because Father Newman was the guy in the prison. Okay, so Father Gordon, um, Lorraine ends up going to his house in the third act um, to get a translation for something. At that point, we get the uh, we get the reveal that the occultist or the antagonist of this film is actually the daughter of Father Gordon, the guy that they've been coming to multiple times for information, knew the entire time the information that they were looking for, but obviously he kind of played coy to protect his daughter, blah, blah, blah. Lots of good protecting his daughter did because she promptly slices his throat <laughs> for, for doing that. He basically spends, what, the last 20 years protecting, you know, her identity and her activities, and she promptly offs up pretty much as soon as he rats her out. Because basically um, he admits to Lorraine that it's his daughter, and then he basically opens the pathway for Lorraine to get to the woman's altar. And and the big thing in this movie, um, you know, the big way to defeat our villain is we have to destroy her altar. Um, she has a very specific stone altar hidden underneath, underground um, at her father's house, uh, basically hidden with underground tunnels. And there's a river there and train tracks that are all hiding it. Um, and so basically that's the big thing. They have to, you know, they have to destroy this altar. The dad kind of opens the door to the altar for Lorraine at the exact moment that he closes the door. There's his daughter standing right behind him. You know, uh, she takes care of her dad and then she proceeds to chase Lorraine. And of course, you know, we get the kind of traditional final chase of the film where, you know, Lorraine's running around these catacomb type things um, underground tunnels where she's looking for the altar. She finally finds the altar, but of course the altar is gigantic and stone, so she can't really do anything. She tries to tip it over. That's useless. Um, you know, she, you know, she's just one person. She can't really do a whole lot. At that exact moment, um, Ed, Ed Warren shows up. Uh, Ed shows up. Um, he figured out 
um, somehow through information that was given to him back at the Glatzel house, he figures out who the occultist is and who her father is and realizes that he sent Lorraine potentially to her death by herself. So he, you know, uh, joins her at, at Father Gordon's house. And then we get an homage to The Shining and not the movie, The Shining, mind you. We get an homage to the book because what we get is we get a scene of Patrick Wilson getting possessed by um, Isla, uh, the occultist. He then picks up a sledgehammer and starts chasing Lorraine all through these catacombs, all through these tunnels, basically taking these big swings. Now, before people start yelling at me to correct me, yes, I understand that in the book it was a croquet mallet that Jack was killing his family with. But when I picture Jack Torrance with a croquet mallet, uh, chasing his family through the Overlook Hotel. It looks almost exactly like Ed Warren wielding a sledgehammer in this movie, chasing after his wife. So I saw the very obvious shining nod right away there. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, basically, you know, then we get the scene that Mike hates. And I understand why Mike hates it. It's a sugary, happy little scene with, you know, Lorraine pleading with Ed, you know, don't do this. You, you know, we're, we love each other. Remember, you know, blah, 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 blah. Ed obviously remembers a scene from the night that they met that Lorraine had kind of told us the story earlier in the film. Ed has a memory of that while he's possessed. Of course, he's able to kind of snap out of it for, you know, for a couple of seconds. And then he, in that time, he takes the sledgehammer and destroys the witch's altar at that exact moment the pseudo exorcism that's happening at the police station and not at the police station at the at the prison hospital where arnie's being held um he's there with father newman um a different priest in the movie and uh, basically they at the at the same time that the witch or yeah witch occultist whatever you want to call her is chasing after lorraine um Arnie is in the prison having another episode. He's trying to kill himself. He breaks a window, grabs a big chunk of knife-shaped glass. There's always one piece of knife-shaped glass in every broken window. And uh, starts to try to kill himself. Of course, you know, Debbie and the father are trying to stop him. And at the moment, like I said, at the moment that Ed destroys the altar... Uh, Arnie is released from his hold and instantly the occultist kind of loses her power. You see her kind of fall to the ground and uh, you start to see her start to contort almost like she's possessed. And what it is, is basically because of the agreement that she made with the unnamed demon of this film. Again, they never mentioned the devil. They never mentioned Satan and they never mentioned any demons by name. So your guess is as good as anybody else's, but basically um, it turns out that she made an agreement with the demon, a soul for a soul. Basically, you know, she gets immortality if she provides the demon with souls. But of course, now that her altar has been destroyed, the demon is there to collect his debt. And we get the obvious scene of the demon, you know, uh, killing the occultist, you know, contorting her body so much that eventually her neck snaps and she falls over and dies. <clears throat> And that's kind of the majority of our film. Um, like I said, very subdued, you know, no gigantic set pieces here, no big villains, you know, larger than life horror villains, nothing like that. 
Um, yeah. And and like I said, except the, except the Warrens themselves, they were the larger except, than life ones. Honestly, <laughs> yes, because if you know about the war, I, I'm not gonna I, I'm gonna try not to talk too much about the real life Warrens. If you know anything about the Warrens, then you know that you know maybe they weren't 100 percent honest about everything they did, and maybe also they weren't the most pious people in the world. Obviously, they try to make them very pious, very Catholic in this movie you know they, they they follow their christian faith and they even mention it multiple times in the film maybe the real life warrens weren't really like that but of course this is hollywood folks we need to glamorize we need to sensationalize to make a two-hour movie watchable because a two-hour movie about the real life uh devil made me do it murder that actually is 100 percent accurate would be one of the most boring fucking things ever uh for those who don't know the real life court case went like this after the judge uh, denied or rejected the plea of innocent by reason of uh, demonic possession. They changed their plea to innocent by reason of self-defense. They were not able to convince the jury that Arnie um, defended himself. Arnie was found guilty of manslaughter and he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Um, he ended up serving five years in prison, getting early release for good behavior. And obviously, if anybody saw the movie, they saw the little preamble there at the end that basically said Artie and Debbie, you know, uh, married while he was in prison. And they are still married to this day. Oh, <laughs> and that's what wow. you do it, folks. Well, until we get the scariest part of the movie is in the credits when they play the actual tape. <laughs> And I was like, well, that was pretty good. The, the end credits are some of my favorite parts of the Conjuring movies, you know, when you actually get to hear the real audio uh, recordings. There was one thing that I forgot to mention that is, I, I can't forgive the movie for this. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen, but it's probably something that no one's even thinking about. During the quote-unquote pseudo-exorcism at the, at the end of the film, mm -hmm. why the hell was Debbie there? Why is a uh, why is a convicted murderer's girlfriend in a prison hospital just because he's on suicide watch? That's not how it works. You don't bring in loved ones when you're on 24 hour suicide watch. You get like um, a, a, somebody from the prison, an employee of the prison to basically sit and watch you or take shifts, basically watching you for 24 hours. Literally, the fakest thing in the whole movie is the girlfriend in the prison during the exorcism. The whole time I'm laughing at that, like, this makes no sense. But again, it's The Conjuring, so I'll forgive it. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else noticed that, but I'm just like, this is a prison hospital. What is this underage? This girl, she's like 17 or 18 at this point. It's like, this girl is an absolute target in a prison. Why the hell would you ever do this? But there it is. There's that there's that Hollywood sens sensationalizing. Ooh, that was a big word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, all in all, I loved it. I'll defend it. I know a lot of people aren't going to, you know, a lot of people I think are going to like it, but I think most people are going to, you know, come in with that attitude of it's the weakest one. And, you know, ultimately, I'm not going to argue with them because what they're basic, what they're really saying by it's the weakest one is it's the one that doesn't that feels the least like the conjuring it doesn't have that james wan touch that sensationalizing the you know the as i've already said multiple times the big over the top set pieces uh, and ultimately that's your choice it, it's your preference and you know i'm not going to argue with anybody about that but i hope that people 
in years to come, will give the movie, you know, second, third rewatches and, you know, hopefully appreciate the subtle brilliance of it because I love this film and I love it because of how subdued it is. So, you know, take that as you will. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I'd be interested to hear from people like on social media or even in when we post this episode, people that, weren't fans of the first two if they decided to still check this one out to see if um they liked this one more because it definitely it feels a little bit different you know yeah yeah especially since it's an hbo max simultaneous release with theaters if people didn't like the first two they at least still have an opportunity to watch this one without spending money because if it was theaters only i can't imagine somebody who didn't like the first two would spend money to watch the third one so but, yeah, I definitely would love to hear. Like I said, most of what I'm seeing on the Internet is positive. Most people like it. Only a few people have said that it's below average or I think one person called it kind of weak. Um, but most people seem to be positive on it. I just don't think they're as positive on it as I am. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I guess that's going to wrap it up for The Conjuring of the Double Made Me Do It. Um, so before we get out of here, let's find out what else we have for people to listen to. Venom, what do you got? Uh, let's see. Um, what do I have? Um, you know, we still have the same episode of the main show out with uh, Shocker and um, Destroyer. Uh, this coming weekend, we'll be recording a new episode of the main show. Looking at my picks, it'll be the first No More Room in Hell Severance special where we're going to look at Bloody uh, Jess Franco's Bloody Moon and Dr. Butcher, MD, Medical Deviant, also known as Zombie Holocaust. Um, that'll be um, available, I would probably say, middle to late next week um, as you're listening to this one. And uh, let's see. That's a uh, let's see on it's not horror okay. We had to postpone our episode last week, believe it or not, because the Boston Bruins are in the playoffs and Nudie doesn't miss a Boston Bruins game. So we ended up postponing last week's episode. It'll we'll probably wait until after the Bruins are out of the playoffs. Don't don't tell Nudie I said that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not winning the cup this year, but whatever. Uh, so hopefully as soon as that as they're out, we will be recording my pick which was supposed to be recorded this week specifically because the uh, Westminster Kennel Club National Dog Show is actually this coming weekend. And because of that, of course, I took the very obvious pick of doing a commentary for Christopher Guest's classic Best in Show. Um, but like I said, that got postponed a week. So hopefully we'll end up doing it uh, either next week or the week after. Uh, as long as we're still recording in June, I'm going to keep that pick because it's still technically the month of the dog show. And yes, I like the dog show. So fuck all of you who are making fun of me right now. <laughs> um, let's see. I, I, and I think that's it. I mean, I, my other shows are on hiatus. And um, and yeah, Fresh Cuts is about the only thing that where I'm putting out consistent episodes. So enjoy, folks. <laughs> all right, Don, you got anything? Yes, so um, it's finally out now. Um, my episode of uh, Hooked on Hitchcock, where I looked at the film uh, Dial in for Murder with a couple friends of mine. Uh, that is on the Indie Film Cafe Network, which is kind of like ours, where it's 
like a bunch of different you know shows and stuff like that. I mean, you guys know how a network network is, so it's kind of mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's run by a friend of mine, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. We had a blast talking about it, and um, it's available now. Um, also, um, we have finally gotten through all the red tape, all the other bullshit that, you know, comes with recording a show. We are finally ready to announce the return of Graveyard Shit. Uh, We are going to record, not this Saturday, but next Saturday, we are going to be doing a franchise retrospective on Phantasm. Yeah, my second time covering the entire franchise on a show, and (laughs) actually, it's um, another first for me, it's actually the first franchise that I've covered on each show. So, it was the first franchise we covered on Mafia, and it's going to be the first franchise we cover on Graveyard Shit that I'm a part of. Nice. We'll make sure we do it on Fresh Cuts next. (laughs) (laughs) If Phantasm 6 ever comes out, we'll do the whole franchise. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Uh. unless our fan casting of um, what's his name? uh, That Clancy guy from uh, Mortuary? Fancy collection. Brown? Fancy Brown. Yeah. yeah, unless he takes over the role, I don't see Phantasm Six coming out. So yeah, I hear that. <laughs> yeah, we'll speak. So uh, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, other than that, um, I have nothing else. Um, just you know, we're finally coming back. We're gonna record it next weekend. So maybe you'll see it before August. I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, fingers um, yeah, fingers crossed. You see it before. August. August, but you know, no guarantees. It's going to be recorded. I can say that much. Well, speaking of our next episode, unless anything changes, we're probably going to be doing uh, Romero's Amusement Park, which is now that streaming means, on Shutter. You know, that's only a short, right? Well, it's is it like a, an hour long? It's no, like it's short. Fifty. It's fifty yeah, minutes. It's, it's under an hour. Oh, yeah. it's that short? Yeah, huh. yeah, it's a shorty. Well, that's the. Oh, I mean, the, the available material that's left, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, there was unshot like, footage they, that they never got, yeah. Yeah, because that's the... I'm hearing... Remind me, that I was supposed to... It. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm trying to remember, like, this was between Season and, and Crazies, right? Oh, ugh, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, because I, 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 that's, like, the one thing I'm trying to remember, because I think that was the thing. It was, like, it was between Season and Crazies, or it was... he. Did it after Crazies? Because mm. it's 73, right? So that's like right around that time frame. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, um, the the thing that they came out with is all of the surviving material that can be formed into a cohesive storyline. Mm-hmm. It's not uh, a feature-length okay. feature film. It's just the surviving footage that can be made into a coherent storyline. Yeah. That's what I've heard, at least. All right. I mean, I'm still going to watch it. Um, obviously, any anything with Romero's name on it, I'll check out. And I'm still yeah. down to talk about it on the show. It'll just make for a shorter show. No big Yeah, either that or we'll just talk about it on the main show, and we'll figure something else out for this one. I mean, we'll, you know. I'm hearing there's, really there's, good there's things about Caveat. There. I don't know if you've seen Caveat yet. Yeah, on Caveat, could be a, Caveat could be a fun one. That's heard, on Shutter, too, thing. right? Yeah, that's on Shutter. Like, drop last week or something. Yeah, yep. Shutter, um, I think it was, yeah, it was the first week. Because that, yeah, Caveat was the first one, and then... Amusement Park was, like, Amusement. today, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah, today. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe we'll just throw Amusement Park 
on the main show, and we'll do caveat next on Fresh Cuts then. We'll figure it out. Oh, yeah. I'm okay with it. You'll know either way when you hear the end episode next week. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. Funny. We, we, we take the time to, to introduce that. the movie, even though 100% of the people listening know what the movie is. Because <laughs> it's in the title. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Oh, well. <sighs> All right, folks. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of fresh cuts we should be back in a week's time with another one so with that said we're gonna get out of here say bye to listeners later peace we're caught in a trap i can't walk out because i love you too much baby Can't you see what you're doing to me when you don't believe a word I say? Say hello